So, we march into Ruth today. It has four chapters. We're going to spend one week on each chapter. And then in move on from it at the end of March. This is one of my favorite stories. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Um, it occurs... Uh, a few generations before 1000 AD, I'm sorry, 1000 BC, um, which was uh, probably around the time when Samuel was a little boy. You remember the stories of Samuel hearing God speak to him and his mom praying for him to you know, be born. And, and uh, it's probably around the same time as that that this story occurs. Uh, right at the near the end of the period of the judges in Israel's history and before they ever had their first king. In fact, um, you know, uh, Ruth's uh, uh, great-grandson was David and David was the second king of Israel. But before we begin the story of Ruth, uh, I'd like to go to its end. And, uh, and talk about that. For the fact is, the ending of Ruth is what gives the story of Ruth such enormous significance. And so I would like us to read the story of Ruth with its end in mind. And so if we go to chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So this is the end of the story, that Ruth is, uh, is pregnant, and in verse 17 it says, They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so that's a significant uh, fact about Ruth. In fact, this genealogy that begins here is picked up in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. And it's carried from this point. It mentions Obed and Jesse and David and even Ruth. In fact, Ruth is one of only three women named in the genealogy of Jesus. And it carries that genealogy all the way down to our Lord Jesus himself. And the fact that Ruth, at the end of the story, has the Messiah in her loins, so to speak, means that the arrival of Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem, which we're going to read about this morning, prefigures the arrival of another couple in the same town. You know, over a millennium later one of whom had the Messiah in her womb. Now, the story of Ruth can stand on its own as a wonderful story, but when you recognize it as a part of our story, because it is part of the story of Jesus, it suddenly becomes deeply personal and not just a wonderful, precious story. Let's read now 
Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food back home. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. In other words, find a husband and get remarried. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, 
Call me Mara. By the way, Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, uh, there was a, a baby born, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, and her mother uh, intended wanted to name her Orpah. But she didn't do too well in the spelling on the birth certificate and instead she wrote Oprah. And thus Oprah Winfrey was born. And so I tell you that because I know from practicing this sermon that I might call Orpah Oprah at a time or two. I just want you to understand what's going on and why it might come out that way. Okay? So, before we uh, get too much into the story, let's just think about the contrast, the stark contrast between the book of Ruth and the book of Judges. Judges comes right before Ruth in the canon. And... uh, um, the book of Ruth actually occurs during the time of the judges, as it says in verse 1. But the two books are just about as different as, you, as they could be and still be in the same Bible. Judges is so brutal. Ruth is so tender. Judges is very much written from a man's perspective. Ruth is written from a woman's perspective. Judges has to do with society and government. Ruth has to do with family and personal relationships. Judges is about people hurting each other. Ruth is about people helping each other. Judges has many heroes. Judges who delivered their people by means of the sword. Ruth has heroes as well. But they are heroes with humbler weapons, by far. The weapons of love and service to others. Judges portrays the nations outside of Israel as antagonistic and dangerous. But Ruth shows that this isn't always the case. But some of those nations are friendly and welcoming to God's people and even eager at times to become a part of God's people. Now, I don't mean to diminish the book of Judges or its heroes. As in Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 34, the judges are to be exalted for their faith. I just want to draw attention to the fact that there's another kind of heroism which, in all its subtlety, And gentleness is just as brave 
just as powerful and just as effective. Now let's think about three characters. Ruth, Naomi, and we'll end with Orpah. Naomi, so we start with Ruth. Naomi and her husband moved to Moab and lived there for 10 years. That's the period of time they were there. We're told that in the text. And then they returned back to Israel. Now we're not given a timeline of their lives there, but it seems that you know their children were too young to be married when they lived in Israel, so they were probably young teenagers. And it seems also that Naomi's husband died uh, before her sons married. So in this 10-year period, her husband dies, then her sons are married, then her sons die, and then at the end she returns back. So that's the order of that we're given, and we have no reason to question it. So, pro- so probably Ruth married somewhere in the middle of the ten years. Meaning that Ruth became a, a widow after a very short marriage. And a very, at a very early age. In a society which treasured having children early and as often as you can... She hadn't had a child yet, and neither had her uh, sister-in-law, Orpah, which again reinforces the idea that their marriages were very young, very new, when their husbands died. You know, uh, two years ago, we, uh, we had a young woman in our church named Amber, and uh, this happened to her. She married, and she lost her husband, and like after a year of marriage... And we all know the heartbreak that that was. We can, we can uh, if, if, if we just think of Orpah and Ruth in context of that, we understand that this was a big deal. She had been wounded. Second of all, Ruth wasn't presented with a choice. She was told to go back to her own people. But she insisted on going on with Naomi. Why would she do this? Why did she make such an astonishing, astonishing choice to go with this widow who's too old to be remarried? So she's going to grow old and she's going to die. Go into a foreign country where she doesn't know the people in order to care for this woman as opposed to returning back to her own people where she could have a good chance of remarrying and having children of her own. I mean, this is just a strange choice that she made. I know that uh, for uh, many of you are probably like me and the caring for an elderly person is not your idea of a great way to spend your life. My wife does this, you know, as her as her job and, and, and has a real heart for it and does an amazing job of it. Um, but to me, you know, the thought of at, at an early age committing your life 
to caring for a woman who's just going to get older and older and worse and more and more unhealthy and probably more and more bitter is not a very pleasant looking choice. So just the choice that she make, made is intriguing. There's something about Israel, something about God's people that compelled her. How much she understood, we don't know. But it's as if God's people, that as she had rubbed shoulders with them up to this point in her life, there's a, a fragrance of life there that, that attracted her. So much so that she was willing to count everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing the God that was behind this fragrance of life. Remember that Ruth wasn't originally interested in Naomi, but in Naomi's son. And yet, in the mysterious purposes of God, it seems that God was actually using Naomi's son to draw Ruth to Naomi, and then using Naomi to draw Ruth to Naomi's God. Amazing and precious part of the story. Now, you may not know this, but at GPC, we have our own Ruth. Her name is Amanda. And the first time I heard her story, I, I couldn't but think about Ruth. She has given me permission to share it briefly this morning. Just as Naomi grew up in Israel, so Amanda's husband, Stephen, grew up in church, the son of a pastor, in fact. But after he left home, he wandered from the faith and from the church. Just a few years ago, Stephen's mother died. And God used this to convict Stephen that he needed to return to the Lord and to his church. And so he went to Amanda and he said, I need to go back to the Lord and to the church so we either need to break up or we need to get married and follow the Lord together. What a choice to be confronted with. What was Amanda going to do? I'm sure that there's many women who would hate to be confronted with that question. But amazingly, God had prepared Amanda for this very moment. See, Amanda did not grow up in a Christian home and she had a difficult childhood to say the least. But God had strangely shown himself to this little girl in her childhood and as she grew up in a number of ways. But she'd never known what to do with it. She knew that God was there. She knew that he had his eye on her. It was as if she knew there was a light, but she didn't know where to go to get into the light. And then 
When Stephen presented her with these two options, she knew what this meant. She knew it meant walking into the light, which she'd longed to walk into since she was a little girl. And so what was her answer? Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Just like Ruth. It sort of makes you wonder who this little girl is going to be in her womb. You know, every person who truly comes to Christ and to his church says this to God's people. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. And you know, the two always go together. You can't take God to be your God without also taking God's people to be your people. And you can't take God's people to be your people without also taking God to be your God. They come as a package. Our true family is made up of those who belong to Christ. And not just the people who are alive today, but even the ones who have gone before us. That's why we can read the Bible and know that these are our forefathers. And church history as well. When you come into the community of faith, you enter a whole new life and you leave the old behind. Now let's talk about Naomi. First of all, think about what this dear woman had been through. Before you, we judge her for her bitterness, let's consider what she experienced. In those days, women were pretty dependent on their husbands to support them. And that's why the plight of a widow was such a bleak one. Naomi and her husband were very glad to give birth to two boys to help their dad work the fields. Imagine when Elimelech died. Not only was Naomi left without her partner, but she was left to raise her two boys on her own. Surely the two boys at that point were old enough to bear much of the weight of working in the fields. But then, after her sons married, they both died, leaving three women to care for each other and to work the fields alone. And again, Ruth, uh, Naomi had no extended family because she was in a foreign country. Just the three of them. Now, as you know, I have a daughter who lives who has lived for the last 20 years or so in West Africa. And recently she moved to a rather large city and her father's heart has been relieved in a number of ways because of that. One of which is because of the burden that she bore just in preparing food for her, for her family every day. In the capital, they have access to grocery stores and things like, you know, similar to what we have, not... To that extent, there's no Wegmans there, but, but uh, you know, they can buy things. And, but where she was before, she would basically buy ingredients at the market and 
Everything was made from scratch. Everything, three meals a day, made completely from scratch. So that by the time you finish one meal, it's time to start the next. This is an enormous burden. It takes almost an entire day and day after day after day just to provide food for the seven of you. I can, in light of this, I can just imagine what life was like for these three women. Not only having to work the fields, but then to prepare their food from what they got from the fields. You know, grain that needed to be turned into flour and, and crops that needed to be prepared. Not only were these women heartbroken from losing their husbands, but they were working themselves to the bone, as we say. And so it's understandable why Naomi would say things like she does in verse 13. It is exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And in verse 20 and 21, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It felt like one tragedy after another had occurred to her. And you know something, beloved? Those things that Naomi said, they're in the Bible for you and for me. Because sometimes that's what we say to ourselves in our own hearts. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. Sometimes we feel that way about things that are happening in our lives. And so God put these verses here because he wants us to see that for God's people, even when life seems bitter, it never stays that way, first of all, and it never ends that way. Naomi's story has such a happy ending that it got put into the Bible. And it helps explain how Jesus came to us. And yet at this moment in the story, it is so bitter that she can't hold back from saying it. What an enormous disjunction there is between how we first experience something and how it ultimately turns out when God turns it for good. How wrong our feelings of bitterness often are. How wrong Naomi was when she uttered these words and thought them in her heart. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. She had lost perspective. Think about it. When she originally left Israel, was she full? They fled Israel because they were starving. There was a famine and there's nothing to eat. That's why they fled to Moab. She didn't leave full and come back empty. She went away empty. But in the Lord's will, in the Lord's mind, 
He sent them away. He made them hungry because there was an ingredient in the Messiah that was in Moab that the Lord needed in order to form the Messiah to save the world. Without knowing it, Naomi went away empty and she came back full. Just the opposite of what she's feeling at the moment. Think about how full she was. In one sense, she was bringing back to her, in the person of Ruth, the greatest treasure the world had ever known. For she brought back Ruth, and inside of Ruth was an egg which later became her daughter, her grandson Obed, whose seed became Jesse, whose seed became David, whose seed eventually became Jesus, the Messiah. And this is the same with all of God's people. We may feel empty, but the fact is we have a great treasure within us. A treasure that if people had eyes to see it, the whole world would envy. Remember Satan's first temptation in the garden? Basically, he was trying to convince Adam and Eve that they were deprived. Even though they'd actually been lavished with an immense amount of privilege. Yet he was whispering in their ear that they were being cheated. And he still whispers the same message to us today. Recently I was reading uh, the story of the last battle in the the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I came upon a little part of the story where C.S. Lewis is teaching the same thing. Uh, There's a king of Narnia at the time, Tyrion. And he's been captured by the enemy. And he's tied up to a tree and he's he's held there a long time and he's exhausted because he's standing up and he's starving. And, you know, for those of you who haven't read it, Aslan the Great Lion in the Narnia tales is the Christ figure in the story. And so, let me read you a little part of this story in The Last Battle. Tyrion thought of other kings who had lived and died in Narnia in old times. And it seemed to him that none of them had ever been so unlucky as himself. He thought of his great-grandfather's great-grandfather, King Rillian, who had been stolen away by a witch when he was only a young prince and kept hidden for years in the dark caves beneath the land of the northern giants. But then it had all come right in the end. For two mysterious children had suddenly appeared from the land beyond the world's end and had rescued him so that he came home to Narnia and had a long and prosperous reign. It's not like that with me, said Tyrion to himself. Then he went further back and thought about Rillian's father, Caspian the seafarer, whose wicked uncle, King Myres, had tried to murder him and how Caspian fled away into the mountains and lived among the dwarves. 
But that story too had come right in the end. For Caspian had been helped by children. Only there were four of them that time. Who came from somewhere beyond the world and fought a great battle and set up, set him on his father's throne. But it was all so long ago, said Tyrion to himself. That sort of thing doesn't happen now. And then he remembered how these four children who had helped Caspian had been in Narnia over a thousand years before. And it was then that they had done the most remarkable thing of all. For then they had defeated the terrible white witch and ended the hundred years of winter. And after that, all four of them had reigned at Caraparavel. And their reign had been the golden age of Narnia. And Aslan had come into that story a lot. He had come into all the other stories too, as Tyrion now remembered. Aslan and children from another world, thought Tyrion. They've always come in when things were at their worst. Oh, if only they could come now. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. But the darkness and the cold and the quiet went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself but come and save Narnia. And still there was no change in the night or in the wood. But there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope. And he felt somehow stronger. Just as Tyrion could remember the examples of his forefathers in the midst of their desperate and bleak circumstances, so God has given us stories like Ruth to remind us that even in the stories, that, that in all those stories with the happiest endings, even they have times which looked immensely bleak and dark. Now let's just for the last couple minutes consider Oprah. Oprah isn't a central figure in the story, but there's still an important lesson to learn from Oprah. Uh, Orpah, I did it. At first, Orpah was also inclined to go to Israel with Naomi. She joined Ruth in verse 10 saying, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi's persistence finally persuaded her to return to her own people. Some people come close to the kingdom. Some have an open door to walk through. But tragically, they won't. It's right there for the taking, but they don't take it. Sometimes it even looks like they're going to take it. But in the end, they refuse. The rich young ruler was such a person. The opportunity was right there for him, right in front of his face. The Messiah, the Son of God. But he walked away. Salvation and life was within arm's reach. But he refused it for something else as trivial and stupid as money. The world's orpus and the world's rich young rulers are such a tragedy. 
So many are attracted to the light, but they never really latch on. They hover for a while, but in the end, there is too much to give up. They come to church for a while. They like hanging out with God's people who are waiting for the bridegroom to return. But they have no oil in their lamps. And eventually the open door which beckons them will be closed and they'll be left out. What about you? Don't be an Orpah. Be a Ruth who won't take no for an answer. Who can't be persuaded not to come. She's going to take the kingdom by force if she has to. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this precious book, this story of Ruth, that you, by because of your love for us, have included in your word. Thank you for the example that we receive from Ruth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like her, willing to leave everything behind of earthly significance in order to achieve eternal treasures. And now, dear Lord, we thank you for the table. And as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would help us to realize what a treasure we have before us that's being offered to us. And dear Lord, we know that that treasure is not consumed truly by just putting bread and wine into our mouths and digesting it, but by putting Christ into our hearts. We pray that every heart would prepare him room and would receive him today, even if never before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.